This is Ron Stockton. Today I want to talk to you about the condition of the Palestinians as of 1949 and thereafter. 1948 was when Israel became a state and the Palestinians ended up in exile, at least a very large proportion of them. Um, I hope you can see that we're doing sort of a parallel analysis. I think that's the only way this makes sense. We talked about the condition of the Jews in the 1800s and how it led to Herzl's famous essay, Der Judenstaat, the Jewish state. Now we're going to talk about the condition of the Palestinians and how that led to the emergence of Palestinian nationalism, specifically the PLO Charter, and then later the Hamas Charter. Um, I wish you could look up some things. Um, find a map, if you wish, of the UN Partition Plan of 1947. That's Resolution 181. You might Google it and see the main provisions of that. It's a very good background. We won't have time to go deeply into that, but you might read it. You might look for Resolution 194, which has to do with the status of the Palestinians. I think that uh, would be very, very good to read those too. Um, I wrote a really good briefing document on the Palestinian refugees of 1948. That is available on Deep Blue. I've told you earlier about Deep Blue, and it's the University Virtual Archive. If you didn't listen to that two or three minute uh, uh, podcast on how to download those for free, uh, that would be very good background for you. I'm afraid I don't have time to go through that whole thing. It would be a bit uh, too long, but uh, you might want to read it. Uh, it's got over 11,000 downloads. Uh, people really find it helpful. Um, we're going to talk about... Uh, uh, the emergence uh, of, of the PLO, and we're going to talk about the uh, PLO Charter uh, in another podcast. We're going to talk about the uh, Hamas Charter in another podcast. But right now, what we're talking about is the situation of the Palestinians. So off we go. Thank you. See what happened in 1947 was that the United Nations reached a conclusion that there is no way that Jews and Palestinians can live peacefully in one country. There's only one solution, to partition the country into two countries and then federate them together so the Jews will control their affairs, the Palestinians will control their affairs. How are we going to do this? Well, what we're going to do is draw the line. The lines become very critical. We're going to draw the lines according to where people live. So those are areas where Jews live. We're going to uh, make that a part of the Jewish state. And those areas where Palestinians live, we're going to make that a part of the Palestinian state. However, there was a problem. David Ben-Gurion decided that the Jewish state was this tiny little mini state. He wasn't willing to settle for that. So he decided he was going to expand the size of the Jewish state. So much of the fighting so if you look at this uh if you look at this map i just put up here it's got it's got three parts to it look carefully there 
the big stripes are the areas that were supposed to be the Jewish state and ended up being the Jewish state. The white part there, you see the West Bank. The white part, the white part there, and way down there, you see Gaza. That was supposed to be the Palestinian state and ended up under Palestinian control. But what are those little stripes there? You see up in the north there, Galilee. You see that? That's supposed to be a part of the Palestinian state. Those small stripes are areas that were supposed to be Palestinian because that's where the population there was Palestinian. And, and, but those striped areas were areas that were supposed to be Palestinian, but there was so much fighting there in 1948, 47 and 1948, that it ended up in the Jewish state. Now, <clears throat> what happened is all those people, the Palestinians who were there basically fled or got driven out. So this creates a Palestinian refugee problem. So let me give you some numbers. I'll tell you, the numbers are all faked. I don't know. They're not faked. The numbers are disputed. And everybody wants to say, you know, there just weren't many Palestinians there. Those on the Israeli right wing say there weren't many Palestinians. They're making this up. And the Palestinians want to maximize their numbers. We in this class have to be as cautious as we can about numbers. So when we get to my briefing document on the Palestinians, the Palestinian refugees, I've tried to be as cautious as I can. So let me give you some, uh, some numbers. Uh, I'm going to be reading this. Uh, so you can write these numbers down. You'll find them all later in that briefing document, but we're not there yet. So you might as well write them down. In 1948, there were 860,000 Palestinians in the mandate. 700,000 of these, some people would say up to a million, uh, were driven out or fled. Okay, wait a minute. 860,000, 700,000 were driven out and fled. That means about 85% of all the Palestinians that were in that area fled. Now, you see those small stripes on the map? That's where the refugees came from. And where did they go? They went to the West Bank. They went to Gaza and some went to Lebanon to the north. Those from Galilee fled north. They didn't fly. They didn't flee east over to Jordan. That's a big, big hike. So they fled right across the border into Jordan. And then many from the eastern part of the mandate fled into Jordan. So Jordan actually <clears throat> doubled its population in 1948. Jordan doubled its population. Isn't that amazing? Half of all the people in Jordan in 1949 were refugees who had not been there, Palestinian refugees who had not been there in 1948. Isn't that amazing? In January of 48 to December of 1948, Jordan doubled its population. And then it acquired it, it annexed, uh, nobody recognized this, but they claimed that the West Bank was a part of Jordan now. And, uh, and uh, that basically doubled their population again from their original base. So Jordan was now three times what it was. If you think of it that way, what a situation that was. Um, 
all of those Palestinians who fled lost their property, all of it, all of it. There were 160,000 Palestinians left in the Jewish state, in the state of Israel. So we're talking now about around January of 1949, January and February, the truces were signed. That, that meant that the fighting stopped. The fighting had basically stopped by the end of 48, but the paperwork was signed in January. And I think one document was signed in February, but that established the boundaries of the state of Israel. This is called the green line. That's a diplomatic term. It just means a truce line, but that became the state of Israel, the boundary of the state of Israel. And so when Israel was later admitted soon to the United Nations, they were admitted with that boundary. Of the 75, of the 160,000 Palestinians left inside of Israeli Israel itself, 75 thousand of those wait what did i say 160,000 total 75,000 of those were declared present absentees now what is a present absentee that was a legal term that the israelis established just right out of the air what does it mean it means someone who didn't leave the country that is they didn't leave what later became israel and go into the west bank or anywhere lebanon or anywhere else they stayed but they weren't in their house when the fighting stopped. Well, come on, a lot of people, they were in the middle of a battle, they fled from their house to another house to their, you know, go visit your uncle or your grandmother or, you know, go somewhere. So those people were declared present absentees. They lost all their property. Those who fled lost everything. We'll talk about that in just a second. Those who fled lost everything. But the present absentees, they were legally declared to be enemies of the state, even though they weren't. They they were not accused of, of fighting or anything like that or so they would have been expelled but but they were declared enemies and therefore they lost all their property so the uh the ones who fled lost just a minute i got to read this here they lost uh four million dunams a dunam is uh, uh four dunams is d-u-n-e-m dunam a dunam is a quarter of an acre, so four dunams is an acre. So they lost about four million dunams. So they lost about a million acres, right? But the present absentees lost another million dunams. So four million, those who fled, one million, so that's a total of five million uh, acres of land, uh, dunams of land that were taken from the Palestinians. Of those who remained, they lost a total of 40% of their property. 350 of 370 new Jewish settlements that were created right after, from 1949 to 1953, there were new Jewish settlements for the Jews of Europe and other Jews who came in, some from the Middle East, we'll talk about that later. Those Jews came in and so they created 370 new Jewish settlements for them, houses, whatever. I mean, townships, whatever. 
and 350 of the 370 were on confiscated land. Now, this is where I really wish we were live because I was in Jordan once and I met the mayor of Elbira. His name was Abdul Jawad Saleh. For those of you who maybe know that history, I doubt that any of you do. He was a very legendary person, uh, a very person of exceptionally high integrity. The Israelis kicked him out and he created a, what we call a think tank and he created a map showing all of the a map of Palestine, showing all the Palestinian towns and villages that existed on January 1st, 1948, and did not exist on December 31st, 1948. That's about, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of people, you know, 300 or so, 300 or so different villages. They just would take a village and rename it, give it a Hebrew name and destroy, flatten all the houses, and uh, uh, my, my. Uh, let me give you some, okay, you know what we're doing here? We're looking at the situation of the Palestinians because out of this situation, there emerged nationalist movements. So we got to understand, same we did with, the same thing we did with the Jews, we looked at their circumstance and then saw how that produced uh, uh, Herzl and, and the logic of Zionism. We're going to do the same thing here with the Palestinians. So let me give you some more numbers. Numbers are so scary. It's pretty hard to argue with numbers. Jerusalem had, uh, you know, what happened? The 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 educated classes, you know, the, the Palestinians weren't just peasant people. They had modern agriculture. They exported a lot of citrus, oranges, things like that to Europe. They had educated people, they had doctors, they had lawyers, they had judges, they had professors. They had literary people who wrote books and novels and poems and huh, this was a high achieving population. They were high achieving, no doubt about that. Let me give you some numbers. Jerusalem had 75,000 Palestinians. By the end of the year, it had 3,500. But did you hear that? 75,000, that was the center of Palestinian culture. <coughs> Excuse me. Had about 75,000 people, 3,500 were left. Jaffa had 70,000 people, 3,600 were left. Haifa had 71,000, 2,900 were left. Lida and Ramla, now we're going to talk about that later. That's a very special case had 35,000, 2,000 were left. Nazareth had 15,500, and at the end of the war, it had 16,800. Okay, wait, wait, it went up. Nazareth went up. What do we know about Nazareth? It's where the Christians are, right? It's a Christian town. Today, it's all mixed. Uh, probably a majority of the population are Muslims today, but that's a famous Christian town, being the hometown of Jesus. So here's what happened. There was a little bit of a bias on the Israeli side. They thought, you know, it, 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 they kicked out a lot of a lot of Christians. But the fact is, they they were they they were kind of let some Christians stay behind because they thought if we're if we're too hard on the Christians, the Americans are going to hate us. So we got to be kind of nice to the Christians. So a few Christians 
rather than being expelled, were allowed to flee into Christian locations. So Nazareth was one of those who picked up, what, about a thousand, a thousand people were added when other Palestinian towns were decimated and left out. Um, Tiberias, now Tiberias was basically a Christian town. It had 5,300 people. And uh, at the end of the war, it had none. There, were, there was no Palestinian population left. I talked to a, uh, a man, Michael Suleiman, uh, you, you wouldn't know his name, but he was one of the great Arab American scholars. Um, he, uh, he died a few years ago. Uh, Michael was from there and his father was a, uh, an official of some kind. And he said, at a certain point, we realized they were coming for us and we left. It wasn't as if they were shooting at us and we fled. But he said, everybody got into boats and went across the, the Dead Sea, sorry, the sorry, it went across the Sea of Galilee uh, into Jordan. And so um, so that's um, that's his story, and it's a very common story. The Christians of Nazareth now are trying to reseed. They're trying to get Christians to move into Tiberias to reseed the uh, Christian population to try to build it up once again. I don't know if that's successful or not. And then Safed, we talked about Safed, right? Safed had 9,500 uh, people, uh, Palestinians. At the end of the war, it had none. Okay, at this point, the Palestinians were living in exile. Their rich people had all lost their property. Their professors, their doctors, their, their judges had all lost their, their positions. The, the people had quarries. Palestinians made, made a lot of, they were into construction. So the people had quarries, the people had orchards, they lost all of that. Now they're living, what, as in impoverished conditions in Jordan or wherever they are. I talked to a man, he was a Christian. He was the former foreign minister of Jordan. And he said, when my family came in, in 1948, we fled. And he said, there was a, they were in the city of Salt. If you remember where Salt is, it's the big Jordanian city that overlooks the escarpment. And uh, he said, my family were, uh, there was a nice person here who put us up, had an had a extra room. And so my family was allowed to stay there. And he said, for two years, my father slept on the floor. He refused to, to buy a bed. He said, we had enough money. We could have bought a bed or people would have helped us. I don't know. We could have had a bed. My father refused to sleep in a bed because he said, no, we're going back. If I sleep in a bed, that's kind of permanent. You, you kind of stay where your bed is. We're going back. No, they thought they were going back. They thought there would be a deal and they would be able to go back. Never happened. So here they are living in complete, uh, living in complete uh, exile with uh, no leadership, no leadership. That's very important. But meanwhile, Nasser came to power and he said, I'm going to help the Palestinians. I'm going to help you get your land back. So everybody looked at the Nasser. They thought, okay, he's going to solve the problem. And the other Arab states, there were, there were governments in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and Saudi Arabia. And all of those people said good things about the Palestinians. And you know what all of them did? They all created a Palestinian liberation organization or whatever it might be called. But you know what? All of those organizations were governed by the security forces of that country. So uh, uh, Syria created a Palestinian group, but they appointed its leadership. Nasser created the PLO. <sighs> uh, 
but he controlled it. He appointed its head. Everything it did, it did under Nasser's direction. All of its speeches followed his ideology that Arabs are all one big people. And uh, um, you know what? I didn't turn on my, oh, I'm just looking at myself and I'm seeing, is that better? Is that better? I don't know. Uh, no, wait a minute. I didn't turn on my, I, love, I have a little light here that kind of makes, gives a little illumination. Oh, is that better? Yeah, but you still, I still have, I still have glare in my eyes, don't I? I should, uh, I don't know what I could do. Can I pull it down? I don't think so. Um, so, you know what was interesting? Uh, not, there was no Palestinian voice. There was no independent Palestinian voice, but they kind of thought that was logical. They thought, you know, the Arabs are going to save us. The Arab leaders are going to save us. So they all started looking to the Arab leaders. Now, by the way, I mentioned PLO. We're going to talk about this later. Uh, uh, probably next class when we talk about Fatah and the PLO Charter. We really have to think of PLO 1 and PLO 2 because it didn't change its name, didn't change its offices, nothing. But there's a certain point at which the PLO ceased being an Egyptian organization and became a Palestinian organization led by Yasser Arafat. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about that, but keep that in mind. Uh, up, in, up until 1968 or so, the PLO was really a, uh, a front group for Nasser. Now, let's, uh, let's look at some numbers. So there's a thing that's called Where Palestinians Live. You see that? I typed that up for you, and uh, that's in your uh, that's in files. So uh, you might uh, you might get that out or look at it. But I'm going to read you some numbers, so uh, you can you can follow along if you want. Uh, it's it's where Palestinians live, and so let me tell you where Palestinians live. In 1952, that's just right after 1948, 1952. That's uh, four years after after. Uh, the refugees suddenly be, Palestinians became refugees. 80, 85% of all of them now are living as refugees. Some are living in, some are living in uh, the West Bank or Gaza, in which case technically they're not refugees, they're displaced people. If, if we get driven out of Michigan and have to go down to Ohio, we would not be refugees. People would call us that but we would be uh, displaced people because it's within our country. You know, we're, we're displaced from one place to another. So that's, these are legal, international legal terms. So the Palestinians in Jordan were not refugees technically. Uh, be, uh, sorry, the Palestinians in the West Bank were technically not refugees, but the ones in Jordan were. So that's just, a, I, I don't think, it, I think it's a distinction without a difference, but but legally, it makes a point. So we're, we're going to keep that in mind. Um, so where were the Palestinians in 1952? Okay, write these numbers down, would you? And you're going to find these numbers uh, on this sheet when you look at it. But uh, write these numbers down. So uh, in 1952, 46% were in the West Bank. That's part of Palestine, right? So they got kicked out of one place and went to another place, but they're still within Palestine. 19% uh, are in Gaza, and 11% are in Israel itself. So think about it. Those three, those three places are all historic Palestine, aren't they? 
Now, the political system is different. Obviously, there's a big difference between Israel and the West Bank. If you're a Palestinian living in the West Bank, you might stand there and look right across the border and, and see uh, 100 yards away your house. But the fact is you can't go there because it's a different country and the Israelis would arrest you or shoot you or whatever they would do. So in 1952, 78% of all Palestinians still lived in Palestine. Now, it was now three three components or four. There was Israel, there was the West Bank, there was Gaza, and there was East Jerusalem. West Jerusalem was Jewish, East Jerusalem was Palestinian. So that's that. Now, in 1952, they lived in some other places. 9% of the Palestinians lived in Jordan. Now, let's make a point here. Jordanians and Palestinians are sort of cousins. That is, there were a lot of Palestinians married to Jordanians and Jordanians married to Palestinians. So, and remember, historically, by historically, I mean up until 1922 or so, there was no distinction here. The Turks controlled what is today Jordan and they control what is today Palestine and you could move back and forth. And in fact, the Turkish provinces, we look at the map, Palestine goes north and south, right? It's long. Under the Turks, they're their uh, uh, districts ran east and west. So there was a part of Palestine and there was a part of uh, Jordan and they were actually in one province. So the fact that somebody from Palestine married a Jordanian and vice versa, that didn't surprise anybody. And you had relatives over there and then suddenly the British came in and drew a line, a boundary that didn't historically exist. So where else were the Palestinians in 1952? 9% of them were in Jordan, 7% were in Lebanon, and 5% were in Syria. These were refugees. They just ran across the border to get away from the fighting. So they're living literally where they can see their homeland. They're living on the border of Palestine. So where else did Palestinians live? Well, not many other places that that covered 99% of them. There were a few here, a few, a few in Egypt, a few there, a few in Iraq, here and there, a few in Michigan, but these are hands full, hand, handful of people, not Mitch, not many. So let's jump ahead. You're going to see how this evolves. Let me find something here. Um, let's go to, uh, now, let's go to 1991 and look at where the Palestinians lived. Okay, now, you see this little chart I've got for you. It's got 52, 61, 67, 77, 82, 87, 91, 2000, and 2010. Okay, it's got all those, all those dates. But let's go forward to 1991. Ah, yes. Ah. Uh, The West Bank had 19% of the Palestinians. Whoa, that's a big shift. It was 46%, now it's 19%. Where have they gone? Gaza has 11%. The population of Gaza is increasing fast, but still, they've gone from 19% to 11%, 1991. Israel 
went from 11% to 13%. Oh, wait, Palestinians are coming back, right? No, 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 no. That has to do with natural increase, birth babies, babies. Um, the Palestinians joke that every time the Israelis declare a curfew on one of our towns, they get a couple extra babies, you know, because we don't have anything to do except stay at home. Um, Jordan, in 1991, had 32% of all the Palestinians. Look at this. It was 9% back in 1952, and now it's 32%. You know what? That's the largest number. That's the largest number of Palestinians. West Bank is 19%, and Jordan is 32 So Jordan has now become, what, the Palestinian state? I don't know. Anyway, Lebanon has 6%. That's about what it had before. It had 7%. Now it's got 6%. That's that's not a very significant change. Syria had 5%, and it's still got 5%, so that hasn't changed either. There are, there are Palestinian refugee camps in the middle of Damascus. You kind of can't tell them. If you're driving by, you say, oh, that's a camp. And you say, how can you tell? Well, you can't really. They just look like any other place. But it's a camp. Everybody knows that. The Syrian security forces will be spying on those people. Now look at Kuwait. Let me, uh, what? We're looking at 1991, right? Okay, what happened? What happened? What had just happened? Hmm. The Gulf War, right? Saddam invaded Kuwait. You know, back in 1952, how many Palestinians were there in Kuwait? None. Well, I mean, maybe one or two, but not none, statistically none. But you know what happened? The Kuwaitis discovered oil. But you know what? The Kuwaitis didn't know anything about, <clears throat> about oil. So you know what they did? They began hiring Palestinians. You want someone to manage your, uh, your books? Hire a Palestinian accountant. Those people are good. You want an engineer to help you sink your well? Hire a Palestinian. You know, they're very well educated. The Palestinians are probably the single most educated people in the Arab world. Because you know what? Their parents have always said to them what Jewish parents always said to their kids. Get an education. Whatever happens, they can never take your education away from you. So Palestinians are, are, are very well educated statistically. And at the bottom of the heap, if you just want a bunch of workers to go out and you're going to pay them peanuts and they're going to work in the oil fields, you hire Palestinians. Because why? They don't have anything else to do. They're sitting in those refugee camps. If you got a piece of land, you're not going to go and work in the oil fields. But so you know what? By by. In 1987, 7% of all the Palestinians lived in Kuwait. You know what they used to, you know what the Palestinians used to say? I'll tell you. They used to say, you want to you know where the Palestinian state is? It's Kuwait. We built it. It was sand before we created the oil fields and we built the cities and we built all the, the roads and we did this and that. You know, there's some truth in that. But then what happened? When Saddam invaded, he had some Palestinian collaborators. And, and when the monarchy got back into power, thank you, Uncle Sam, thank you, U.S. Air Force, thank you, U.S. Army, thank you, Marines. Once the Kuwaiti royal family was back in power, you know what they did? They said, okay, you know what? We can't tell the good Palestinians. A lot of Palestinians were supported the monarchy. They didn't fight against uh 
they didn't turn on the monarchy. One of my former students was a banker there, and uh, and he's he's he just retired, but uh, he's he's got a uh, you know he he was trusted, and so when it was over, they didn't kick him out, but they kicked out most statistically all the Palestinians got kicked out, and it was very difficult. Um, I was in Kuwait once, you know, and and the person organizing it said, "Don't talk to me. Don't ask anyone about the Palestinians. It's too painful for them." So I thought, okay, I'm not going to be here without asking about the Palestinians. So I had a nice lunch with someone, you know, and I said, "Okay, tell me about what happened regarding the Palestinians." And he said, "I, I can't talk about it. It's too painful." It's exactly what I was told. They can't talk about it. It's too painful. But all the Palestinians got kicked out. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? They went from 7% to nothing. Statistically, there were no Palestinians left. So what do we learn from this? We learn from this is, you know what the Jews will sometimes say? When it comes right down to it, the only person who will stand up for a Jew is another Jew. And the Palestinians say the same thing. You know, when it comes right down to it, the only person who's going to stand up for a Palestinian is another Palestinian. You cannot trust the Kuwaitis. You cannot trust the Syrians. You cannot trust the Lebanese. You cannot trust the Jordanians. And you certainly can't trust the Israelis. The only solution for us is that we have a state where we can go. Does this sound like Herzl? Of course, Herzl said the same thing. We got to have a place where we can go and we're in control. And nobody can kick us out. And if you get kicked out somewhere, we'll take you in. No questions asked. You can come. So as of about now, 45% of the Palestinians live either in Palestine, that is Israel, Gaza, West Bank, East Jerusalem, or on the states bordering Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, 45%. That was 78%. Remember, that was 78%. Now it's 45%. So the Palestinians haven't done well. So let's go back to 1948. What are you going to do? You've lost your leadership. You've lost your property. You've lost everything. You've lost all the positions. Your intellectuals are, are now in exile. Your poets, they're in exile. Your judges, they're in exile. The people, your business people. The Bank of Haifa had about a billion dollars. The Israelis just took it all. What are you going to do? All of your savings, all of your assets are gone. So, you know, there was a man called uh, the Mufti. The Mufti is like a chief religious leader, a judge. He's a chief judge. And uh, his name was Hajamin. Haj, Haj means he's gone. It's a title you give to someone who's made the pilgrimage to Mecca. His name was Amin, A-M-I-N. So he's called Hajamin. But Americans typically call him Husseini, H-U-S-S-E-I-N-I, because he was from the Palestinian family. Uh, Palestinians would call him Hajamin, but we Americans not knowing anything. It's like calling Queen Elizabeth II, just calling her second. You know, if you're Japanese, you say, oh, second was on TV today. You know, you say, oh, are you people crazy? You know, second, that does, that's not a name. Okay, anyway, uh, this is Hajamin al, al Husseini. Um, he was, we'll talk about him. He was a really uh, Palestinian nationalist, a very strong critic of the Israelis. 
of of the Zion, of the British occupation of the Palestine mandate in the 1930s. So the the British kicked him out, and he went to exile. He was in uh, he was in Iraq for a while, and he went to different places. In 1949, he declared himself to be the president of a Gaza government. He called it was called the Gaza government. And so he declared himself to be the, and many of the Arab states recognized him. They thought, you know, come on, he's the only one. So why don't we recognize him? So they recognized him, but he never had any power. It was purely on paper. You know, he got an office and people call him, you know, president and it's not worth anything. So that, that was a meaningless uh, development. Um, something really significant happened in 1951 because uh, remember the Jordanians had occupied the West Bank. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'll tell you what the Jordanians say. We saved the West Bank. We saved part of Palestine for the Arab people. The West Bank, the Jordanians get a lot of credit. They fought like devils. And the Israelis wanted to conquer the West Bank. They weren't able to do that. So after the war, the Jordanians officially declared the annexation of the West Bank. Now, how did they do that? Well, you know what? There are, there are five big Palestinian families. We're going to come back to those. <clears throat> but in 1951, King Abdallah, who was the king, called a meeting in Jericho. This is called the Jericho Conference, 1951. He called a meeting with, with four of those big families. Now, those families, by the way, I have a, I have a friend who's a Dajani. That's one of the families. And he said, you know, the Dajanis, we're not a family like an American family. We're, we're more like a big clan. There's, there's, he said, once a year, we have a big business meeting. And Several hundred of, of us show up to manage the affairs of, of the family and to uh, invest and to support each other and to uh, make sure the government is nice to us. And, you know, if you look at the Jordanian, if you go to if you go to Amman and you drive around the streets, you're going to see a lot of, you know, this business is Dijani Inc. and Dijani and Sons and whatever. They're all over the place. These four families, they're very prominent. And you know what? They're very close to the Jordanian monarchy. And the the Jordanian prime ministers always make sure they have someone who's a Dijani in the cabinet. Because the logic is, Lyndon Johnson put it really, really well, better to have the camel inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Excuse me, that's a little bit crude, but Lyndon Johnson's from Texas. What can I say? Um, it's barnyard humor, but uh, a barnyard metaphor. So Jordan officially annexed the West Bank. And you know what? Those families said, yeah, we're with that. These families were historically linked in the, in the 30s. They were linked to the monarchy. The Husseinis were not. So there was fighting. We'll talk in 1936. Um, people were shooting each other. Palestinian leaders were shooting each other. We'll talk about this. Um, so, uh, in 1951, King Abdallah and the Jordanians annexed the West Bank and declared, and this, it was this point, by the way, that Emir Abdallah, Emir means, was his traditional title, it means he's a prince. 
he changed his title from Emir Abdallah to King Abdallah. And he changed the name of the country from Transjordan, that old colonial term, to Jordan, which is much nicer, I think. But uh, anyway, so now there's not a there's not a, even a dream of a Palestinian nation. They're now a part of the Jordanian nation, and a lot of people think, okay, that's pretty good. We got a nice deal. The king's nice to us. But you know what? There were some Palestinians who refused to accept this. And so King uh, Abdullah was assassinated. We'll talk about that later. In 1964, in 1964, Nasser created the PLO. It was his, it was his creation, it was run out of his security. His, his security forces ran the PLO. And he appointed this man, Shukari. I talked, we talked about him earlier, didn't we? Ahmed Shukari, S-H-U-K-A-R-Y. He was a pretty, he was an okay guy, but he's the guy who kind of used inflammatory words like we're going to drive the Jews into the sea. I think he was just trying to encourage people, but uh, give them hope. It was like, uh, it was like uh, Winston Churchill, who always made this these dramatic speeches about we're going to fight them, we're going to drive them out, we'll never surrender. And he knew that, and meanwhile, they were planning to, exile to take the whole government and move to Canada because they figured the Germans were going to overwhelm them. But uh, but the speeches were inspiring. And he made these inspiring speeches. And you could kind of pick little passages out in which he says inflammatory stuff. So he gets a he gets a bad reputation. But I think it's not not quite fair. But the fact is that in 1964, the PLO met in Jerusalem and they adopted the PLO charter. We're going to talk about that next hour. Okay. Um, in 1967, the PFLP, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, was founded by George Habash, H-A-B-B-A-S-H, George Habash. His name would be Jirias, J-I-R-Y-A-S, that's George. It's named after St. George and the dragon, you know that. Uh, so we know that George Habash is a Christian because he's got a saint's name. So George Habash was a doctor. He's called Hakim, which means, you know, nice guy that heals people. And, uh, and uh, he went to the American University of Beirut, which was founded in, in the middle of the 19th century by Presbyterian missionaries. And it, it's one of the most important universities in the whole Middle East. English is the language. It, it brings people from all over. We've talked about it earlier in terms of the assassination of Malcolm Kerr. Um, uh, he was from there. And he and some of his intellectual friends, you know what, if you're a minority, you don't like the idea of a religious-based political movement. It's kind of scary. I mean, Jews and Muslims are a little bit nervous when someone in America talks about this is a Christian nation. They say, well, where does that leave us? So those people kind of like the idea of a, of a secular government. And the Christians have always been oriented, and the Palestinian Christians have always been oriented towards secular policies. They say this, no, we don't want an Islamic state. We want a, you know, a state for all of, all of the people. Let's have a democratic state. So George Abbas and some of his friends at, uh, at uh, AUB, American University of Beirut, founded the PFLP. 
And it was inspired by Lenin. And I'm going to have you read some things from that. I want you to read that. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, uh, the June War of 1967, it destroyed all of the illusions. The Palestinians thought, you know, Nasser's this big tough guy. He's going to save us. He's going to get our country back for us. We can all go home, thanks to Nasser. That didn't work. In 1967, it was obvious. Nasser got clobbered. He's not going to be able to liberate the Palestinians. He couldn't even save his own province of Sinai. So in 1968, something really interesting happened. It's called the Battle of Karameh. K-A-R-A-M-E-H. Okay, now, this is where we need to have geography in our mind, right? We've looked at the... We looked at the Jordan Valley, and you remember the escarpment? It rises up, right? It's like this. The it's like this, right? And uh, uh, and and uh, from both sides, there's the the uh, escarpment goes down into the valley, and roads go down there. At the base of the Jordanian side is the town of Karame. I've been there. There's a statue of a Palestinian soldier standing there, holding. Uh, a Kalashnikov, defiantly. That's where a very famous battle took place. You know what happened? The Palestinians had a base there. This is so interesting. Palestinians had a little base there. And uh, they had a, it was about 300 people there. I've got to tell you, it's not, uh, not a very big base. But they had 300 people there. Uh, probably half of them were college graduates. And you know what they would do? They would conduct raids into the west bank that was the palestinians at that point the israelis had captured the west bank in 1967 so there was a resistance movement inside 1968 was a time there was a lot of resistance and uh and uh i talked to a man once he was he's an arab diplomat and and he said you know i was there we were we were uh, you know doing what we could against the israelis and and he said uh he said I was, he didn't tell me his faction. He was associated with one party. But he said, you know, these parties didn't matter. To the Palestinians, we were all on the same side. The, 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 the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and his Fatah organization, Fatah, PFLP, it didn't matter. He said, when, when one of us was running, he said, we're running from the Israelis. We just run up to a house and say, I'm being chased, protect me. And they would say, okay, come in. They didn't ask what party we were from. Oh, we're all the same. And Arafat himself conducted raids. He, he led raids into the uh, West Bank. So these people were based there. And a lot of them were college graduates. Now, we're, we're at a point where, you know, college graduates in the United States do not join the army. That's for poor kids, kids from small towns. Kids from the cities. Once in a while, you get a college-educated person, but usually the students that I've had who are veterans, they sort of served and now they're back on some kind of veterans' benefits, maybe getting a degree. So they didn't. It's not as if you graduate from Harvard and then you sign up for for the for the Marines. That doesn't happen much. But that did happen with the Palestinians. Why? Because if the educated elite aren't it's a it's an honor code you know if you're educated and you're privileged and you're not going to stand up for your people then nobody is so there was a lot of people in Karame who were 
who were college graduates. Isn't that interesting? Engineers, doctors. These, these were interesting, very different from our own culture. So the Israelis decided they were going to wipe out this, uh, this base. And the Palestinians heard about this plan, and they had a meeting. Okay, would you? I'm telling this to you in a certain way. Would you listen very carefully? They had a meeting. The Israelis are going to attack tomorrow. They've got a massive force. They came in with 15,000 soldiers to attack 300. And, okay, maybe we should just flee. They're going to kill us all if we don't. And they had a discussion. They said, no, we've fled enough. If we're going to die, let's die tomorrow. This is a good place to die. So we're not fleeing. So the, they evacuated the leaders. I don't know. Arafat either was there or not. But anyway, they made those leaders go away. We don't want really to lose our leaders. The rest of us will stay. And the next morning, the Israelis attacked in mass. The battle went on all day. At the end of the day, half of all the Palestinians were dead. There were 300 to start with. 150 were dead. And... 30 to 40 Israelis. Now, the Israelis deny this. They say, no, we didn't lose anyone. Of course they did. Okay, wait a minute. You should have a question. Okay, what's the question? You can't figure out what question to ask? Okay, let me ask you a question. I told you the Palestinians knew the attack was coming. How did they know that? Oh, wait, what is that? Oh, there was a Palestinian inside of the Israeli headquarters who overheard it. Oh, come on, please. The Israelis are paranoid. You know, if you're an American Jew and you move to Israel when you're five years old, you can never go into this. You can never be have a top security position. you got to be a sabre. you got to be born in Israel to reach that high security position. American Jews can be propagandists and political activists. They can be whatever they want, but they're not going to be in the inner circle. So how did they know? Well, I'm going to tell you. The Americans told them. Uh, wait a minute. You're saying, what, what the Americans told them? What, what do you mean? Well, we didn't actually tell the PLO, but we told the Jordanians that tomorrow the Israelis are going to attack so, you know, if you talk to the Jordanians about this, they said, you know, up on, up on that escarpment, you know, we were all over the place. We positioned ourselves all over the place. And all of those Israelis who died, they didn't die because of the Palestinians who just had Kalashnikovs. We had heavy weaponry. We were the ones, and we took a lot of losses too, but we were the ones who drove the Israelis out. Okay, why did we want the Palestinians to know that this attack was coming because we did not want the Israelis to destroy the Palestinian nationalist movement the same way we did not want the Israelis to destroy Nasser in 1956. We didn't want that. We didn't want the Israelis to destroy the Egyptian Third Army in 19. 73 we wanted a negotiated settlement in which everybody was in the ball game oh my goodness well a funny thing happened 
word spread about carame it became legendary and within days all across the middle east thousands of young men walked into plo headquarters all over the middle east and said where do i sign up finally palestinians have faced the israelis and have not been defeated this is the first time a Palestinian force fought the mighty Israeli army and was not defeated. Amazing. So overnight, Yasser Arafat became a household name. Everybody said, Yasser Arafat, okay, where do I get a photo of this guy? I want to stick him on the wall above my bed. So Yasser Arafat became the the, the symbol of the of the Palestinian nationalist movement. Now, you know, he had started back in Kuwait. He was an engineer. He graduated from the University of Cairo and in engineering. And he spoke a little bit of English, but not a lot. He, he could he could talk to people in English, but that wasn't he wasn't comfortable. He was better in French. He's, he was very, very knowledgeable in French. But he went to Kuwait and he started a construction company. You know what, if he had stayed, if he, he didn't get involved in politics and started organizing, if he had stayed behind, he would have become a millionaire, but he would have been kicked out during the Gulf War. So, you know, whatever. Just a minute. So what have we got now? We got the PLO. Once it got transformed, by the way, once Arafat took over the PLO, he did. They just walked in and said, okay. At a certain point, they walked in and said, okay, we're, we're taking this over. You, you guys get out of here. We're in charge now. And so they, uh, Arafat and his Fatah organization basically took over the PLO. They had a structure. The PLO was a structure. They had offices all over the place. So they now have an instant structure all over the Arab world. And, uh, and um, Arafat transformed it. He did what uh, Nelson Mandela and, and the ANC did in South Africa. The ANC, the African National Congress, uh, was called the Parliament of the People. All of the different organizations, all of the South African organizations that wanted to eliminate white domination, they were all within the ANC. So the ANC had right-wing people, left-wing people. Ah. A big organ it was the parliament of the people became what we americans would call an umbrella organization you know, we have a big umbrella or a big tent we have a big tent and uh everybody's welcome and uh so anyway the plo became a, a parliament of the people and actually their their conferences they would have the pnc the palestinian national congress the plo would meet and and all of the different groups would come there was, there was a funny story someone told me. There was a, uh, a women's group, a Palestinian women's group in Livonia, and uh, and they uh, there was a there was a Palestinian conference occurring, and they couldn't get certified to be members, so they went and talked to Arafat. They set up a meeting with Arafat, Abu Amr, and uh, he was called, and A M M E R. And so they set up a meeting with Arafat. They walked in. They said, "We're from uh, 
the Ramallah Federation of Livonia, Michigan. And we can't get we can't get credentials to be a part of the Palestinian National Congress. Nerefat said, what? How can this be? The Ramallah Women's Association of Livonia can't get credentials? And he turned to his assistant and said, hey, give these women credentials. Just like that. So this group became, you know, basically any Palestinian group who wanted to be a part of the Palestinian National Congress. They were all PLO in a sense, but PLO was an umbrella. It had all these different groups within it. So Arafat controlled it. Fatah, that was his party. It was the biggest one, and it controlled it. But uh, uh, nevertheless, there the PFLP was there, the Popular Front, George Habash. He was a part of the PLO. You say, wait, he had his own organization. He was a rival, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He had a totally different view of the Palestinian destiny, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But the fact is, he's a part. And there are other groups, too, that we could we, we don't have time to go into all of those. Sorry about that. Um, in 1993, uh, there are two uprisings, two intifada, I-N-T-I-F-A-D-A. We're going to talk about those later. In 1988, there was an uprising. This is not within Israel itself. It's within the West Bank. It was an effort to drive the Israelis out of the West Bank. It, it engaged in non-lethal violence, that is, protests and demonstrations, throwing rocks at people, but they didn't use assault weapons and uh, that sort of thing. So that was the first intifada, and then came the second intifada, and uh, which is called the Al-Aqsa Intifada. So the first was 1988, and then uh, 2000 was the second one, and that's really violent. We'll talk about that too, it's a very different. But anyway, then in 1993, Yitzhak Rabin was elected prime minister, R-A-B-I-N-Y-I-T-Z-A-K, Yitzhak. We might say Isaac, but Yitzhak. Rabin, R-A-B-I-N, and he was elected prime minister. And during the campaign, he said, if I'm elected prime minister, in one year, I will have an agreement with the Palestinians. What's the agreement, Yitzhak? Well, we're going to work it out. He didn't say what it was, but people believed him. He was the national hero of Israel. He's the most famous soldier. And, uh, and he said, I'm going to work it out. And you know that I'm not going to compromise because have I ever compromised in my whole life? No. So... In 1993, he worked out a deal. It's called the Oslo Accords, O-S-L-O, named after that famous city. Rabin and Arafat came to Washington. They stood on a stage with Bill Clinton. They shook hands. Rabin was told in advance, you're gonna have to shake hands. You're going to make a deal. You're going to have to shake hands. Rabin said, I can't shake hands with that man. I hate him. I'm willing to make a deal with him, but I don't, I, I'm not going to shake hands with him. They said, yes, you are. You have to shake hands with him. So you look at that, go onto the YouTube and uh, on the internet and look at, look at the handshake. It's so interesting. I mean, Arafat, I don't know if this guy was, I mean, he's always like up, 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 you know? And, uh, and and he's overly enthusiastic. He bounds over to Rabin, and they sign. They each sign. They sign the document. Arafat bounds over. He grabs Rabin's hand and begins shaking it like this, you know. 
and Rabin's hand is just like this, like, okay, you got my hand, but I'm not, I'm not shaking. But that's the handshake on the lawn of the White House. And nobody was wearing a mask. Well, that's a joke. That's a sick joke, but that's the best I can do at this point in history. Um, uh, that's the Oslo Accords. It, we'll talk about that. It really didn't, it really was a, an agreement to talk. That's what it was. Uh, the PLO recognized Israel and Israel recognized the PLO. And they agreed that they would negotiate. And then came Oslo II, as it was called. Two years later, they actually worked out some agreements. And we'll talk about that later because those agreements were what got Rabin assassinated. Someone saw those agreements and said, no, you're moving towards a Palestinian state. That's, that's an enemy uh, movement. You're trying to destroy the Jews. And they killed him. So uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, let's see, how are we doing? Are we at the end of our time? Just a minute now. Um, I'm not giving up just yet. Wait a minute. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, look at this. Oh my gosh. I think we covered everything I wanted to cover. All the points I wanted to cover. Yeah, okay, just a minute. Uh, I think so. Look at this. Well, you know, at the beginning of this, I wrote down what time it was so I would be able to keep track. And now I can't find where I wrote that down. But, oh, I wrote it down at 12 o'clock. And look at this. It's it's 1 o'clock. We've been going for an hour. That's not so bad. Um, that means uh, this is not quite an hour and 15 minutes, so I'll slip in a little secret uh, short talk at some point to catch you up. So anyway, uh, that's that. And, uh, and so next time we're going to talk about the, uh, about the PLO charter. So I want you to have that printed out, read it ahead of time, and we'll go through, um, we'll go through, uh, uh, we'll walk through that and find out about it. And then the next hour, we're going to, um, we'll look at the Hamas charter. That's a really interesting one too. They're very different from each other. Okay. Bye-bye.